Hello, funky listeners, and welcome to another episode of Funk Radio. This is your host, Kyle. And this is your host, Peter, and welcome to Funk Radio. You are the listeners. In case you were wondering, you are not the <laughs> viewers, because you cannot see us. And we did that on purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, so, this week's episode kind of is a direct spinoff of our previous episode, if listeners happen to be listening in chronological order. Um, mm-hmm. Last episode, we talked about, uh, kind of in a, an overall umbrella sense, music preservation, the concept of music preservation, and help me out here, Peter. <laughs> I'm uh, yes. out of words. So, so that episode was basically about um, the concept of lost media and how, uh, I mean, in, in that episode, we were specifically focused on music, but the idea that... Um, if things aren't properly archived, you know, in many cases, uh, they can become lost to time. And basically, we're just talking about different examples of cases where that has happened and things that uh, have actually been recovered, some that will never be recovered for various reasons. Um, And we kind of got into the idea of music preservation as kind of a sidebar of that in that episode. But in this one, we're going to be covering it, I guess, in more depth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we we touched a little bit on music preservation in the last episode in regards to lost media. So I thought the idea of music preservation was pretty interesting. So we're like, hey, let's just do an episode on that. And this is what that is. Um, so yeah, I guess the first question we have to ask when it comes to music preservation is basically why, why would we do this in the first place? Why do people preserve music? Um, and... It's it kind of goes along with the along the concept of you know the idea of preserving and maintaining any art form, just as you know curators preserve painted works in you know museums uh, like the, the Louvre or whatever. Um, so do people want to kind of preserve um, the artistic expression of audio in music form throughout you know that's been recorded throughout modern history. Um, so there, it's just kind of the sense of like, you know, music is such a innately human expression that, you know, whether the music come from specific cultures, whether it be, whether it be referencing specific eras in history, there's a need to preserve that as a piece of history, just like any other creative medium would be, want to be preserved um, and, you know, and, and I didn't make this mental connection until you were describing this, but um, I forgot that we did an episode, I think a few years ago about, was it the Voyager satellite or whatever that was? Oh, yeah. And how they put like a, they put like a record, uh, like a gold plated record on the satellite or something. Yeah. So, and I think the idea with that was, if, if I, I don't remember all the details, but I think it was um, partially, they were trying to you know, put kind of encapsulate examples of humanity from earth on that. Uh, I think actually there were multiple uh, golden records that they made um, with like, you know, music and photographs and that kind of stuff and sending it out into the void just to see, you know, if any other civilization finds it. Um, But in, in that sense, I think that's, that connects back to music being such a key part of humanity as a whole that, you know, it, like I can't really imagine not preserving music in that sense. 
Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it's funny because, you know, now we think of modern music and it's like, oh, it's all digital. So innately by the fact that it's a digital medium, we just kind of assume, like, it will be around forever. Um, but, you know. But that's actually kind of, it, I mean, it's almost like, well, not necessarily. I was going to say it's almost more of a fragile ecosystem now than it was on physical media, which I guess you could argue that both ways. Yeah, no, that's actually a good point. I think we'll end up touching on that a little bit later, but no, you're right. It's it, it is, as much as we think of something being digital as being sort of forever um, due to, you know, file formats or the way that you can play back something or just the sort of ever-evolving nature, nature of technology and how things are very early backwards compatible anymore you it's it's actually more important to preserve that media in a format that is uh, agnostic to technology so to speak yeah um that's actually a bit of a good segue um so we we mentioned digital uh, media and how you know it doesn't really most people don't feel like it, it needs preserving because it's already preserved as a digital format, but that actually couldn't really be further from the truth. In fact, um, archivists, I guess, um, specifically try to preserve really any for any recording, whether it be you know from 1920 or 2020, they try to preserve it in a physical media, um, and the most uh, widely used format right now is magnetic tape. Um, the reason being is that uh, it's it's kind of funny because magnetic tape is is kind of similar to like cassette tape, but on a more high quality uh, basis. I don't know if we've ever actually talked about like the, the audio physics behind magnetic tape. Before. I I think we've touched um, on it in a number of. Like we on, we've never done like an episode about it necessarily, but I know we've talked about cassettes a number yeah. of times. Um, I mean, eight track I think was a magnetic tape. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's possible we've talked about reel to reel at some point. Probably not in depth. Um, maybe. But um, but they're but all no, kind of you know in that um, same vein, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, as far as the the most popular f form of storage, they uh, archivists lean towards magnetic tape, and they use a uh, type of tape called uh, LTO, or Linear Tape Open. Uh, the reason that this is sort of the gold standard format for archiving is because it's an open source format that's accessible to anybody. It's not proprietary, it's not created by Sony or Magnavox or, you know, any of these sort of... I was going to say Sony, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, proprietary audio companies that create their own formats for or to play on their own, you know, audio players. And I feel like we've um, talked... I mean, it's... I think we've actually done a whole episode on, like, dead Sony formats. On, on Sony's... Yeah, on Sony's fuckery. No, we definitely yeah. have. Um, and so, yeah, so this, this format, Linear Tape Open, um, has actually been around since the 1990s. But the latest version that they've created in 2017 can actually store up to 12 terabytes of data. So they're pretty high capacity. Um, yeah. And so they store them on these, on these big magnetic tapes. And then the actual storage of these tapes actually requires pretty careful planning by archivists. Um, because they have to factor in everything from like 
local envi environmental factors or where they're storing them, such as like humidity, um, it's the, the area's proclivity for natural disasters. Um, well, in that last episode, we talked about that uh, universal archive that all yeah. burned down. I guess that's in a, a case exactly. where they didn't take all the They didn't measures. take environmental factors into account, yeah. such as putting everything in a giant wooden box. <laughs> um, no, very good point. Um, so, yeah, they have to take these factors into account. They have to actually create sort of climate control with within the area that they're storing them to make sure that the material stays cool and dry um, and not exposed to sunlight. Um, and they have to also make these recordings easy. You know, ideally, they would be easy to access. If you're just going to lock them up in a vault, what's the point? You know, yeah. Put them I, in a Disney vault, I guess. I found that aspect kind of interesting. It's because, like, obviously we want to preserve you know, these pieces of human history, but at the same time, we want to make them reasonably accessible, at least to archivists, not necessarily to the public, but just people to get in there and find um, whatever they're looking for. And that, in fact, I'm sure that all these places have their own cataloging systems, kind of like a library. And I guess I, d I didn't look into that specifically, but that, that's probably kind of a fascinating piece all of it in, in itself. Of yeah, If you have a whole warehouse, how do you find you know, the specific Chuck Berry recording, for example. They use the Dewey Decimal System. There you go. Did, did you have to learn the Dewey Decimal System in school? I feel like they tried uh, to teach it to us, but I don't think anyone paid attention. You know, there's something in the way, very back of my mind that maybe we at least talked about it. I don't know if we were ever tested on it. I don't know. Yeah, I was trying to think of that, too. I'm like, I remember them mentioning to us in, like, you know, like, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, but, like, none of us cared. <laughs> and I think by that point, they already had, like, a computer in the library where you could just look stuff up. Like, do they have it? Yes or no? I feel like fourth grade was you. also when they were, or maybe fifth grade was when they were teaching us, like, how to properly write a check. And it's like, that's fine. We never learned that. That's fine, but, like, I didn't need that skill for, like, 15 years <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. It's kind of a good point. It's like you should, t if you're going to teach it at all, teach it in like high school. Yeah. Not like to an 11 year old. It's Maybe they're just fun. trying to like teach you, like, here's how to sign your name. I I think it, I, if I remember correctly, it was kind of an extension of the whole we're trying, we're forcing everybody to do cursive. Oh, um, uh, okay. That makes sense. Um, I, I don't even know if they teach cursive anymore. I'll have to ask my cousin. She's like about that age. Or if they just were like, yeah, everyone just types. No one needs to know this anymore. Yeah, now they just teach like, uh, I don't remember what that's called. When you like move your finger around to create words on like an iPad or a uh, uh, swipe, swipe to text. Yeah, that. And now they just learn that instead. Exactly. It's the cursive of texting. Um, Pretty much. So, I, I mean, I guess we didn't go super in depth with it. Yeah, and with all these aspects, listeners, you know, we have a lot of different aspects we want to go over, but kind of we decided to kind of do it surface level because you could probably make an entire series, you know, just on this topic. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, something that was kind of on my mind as well as you, Kyle, was, you know, how long does this stuff actually last? Because um, I know we talked about like, uh, you know, digital formats definitely have a shelf life. I mean, just, you know, consumer hard drives, you have to replace those every, what, five years, mm -hmm. give or take. You know, and so with magnetic tape being kind of the gold standard, it's like, okay, well, how long does that last? From what I can tell, I, I don't, it's possible it lasts longer than this, but everything I saw online, people mostly said it lasts only about 10 to 20 years. 
Some sources said that it w- it will last up to about 30 years if it's like perfect conditions. And, you know, if, if we're considering that they, there are these like professional archives and everything, I would say that 30 is probably more likely, um, if not maybe a little bit longer than that. But at the same time, that still feels really short. I mean, is that does that mean they're having to copy it again every 30 years? Onto a new that's tape. a good question, especially if you're trying to preserve something that's maybe a hundred years old. It's like yeah. it's preserving it for another thirty doesn't seem very long. Yeah, I, I guess I was just kind of shocked that it was that short of a time span. I mean, thirty years is a long time. Don't get me wrong, but yeah, I mean, in in the long term of historical archiving, that seems fairly short. Um, you did find something that I found really interesting was that apparently there's some new developments going on that could completely blow this out of the water. Um, I guess scientists have apparently come up with a reliable way to write data to proteins and DNA. Mm-hmm. And so far, only a few albums have been preserved this way. I guess, you know, they were testing it out. But apparently DNA can potentially hold 250 or 215 million gigabytes per gram um, with, with a survival rate of tens of thousands of years. Essentially, from what I read... Basically, because they can manipulate DNA, they can basically, because, you know, DNA is made up of four proteins. Uh, I don't remember the actual names of them, but it's like ATCG. Mm-hmm. Um, and the order of that protein, those proteins determine attributes of DNA. Well, from what I was reading, because they can now manipulate DNA, they basically treat those proteins almost as like a binary code of sorts, but instead of binary, it's quadrinary four four options instead of just one and zero right so they by using that code they can write information to dna that is basically like coded out based on the order of the proteins but then they would need a device that can then translate the order of those proteins in back into uh like digital data Almost like a DNA analog to digital converter. <laughs> Have fun finding a cable for that. Um, <laughs> Apple makes one. Yeah. Um, I, I guess in that sense, I mean, I guess that if that becomes a more commonly used, uh, I guess we'll call it a format. <laughs> um, I guess you kind of sacrifice the accessibility aspect that we were mentioning. I mean, yeah, you can go into the archive and you can probably find the petri dish that has um you know thriller on it but then you know getting it off that may be a bit more difficult yeah they they would have to create some sort of device that translates that data uh and then obviously be able to mass produce mass produce that but yeah maybe in the future they'll instead of like hit clips they'll have like I don't know, DNA clips. <laughs> That's a little terrifying. Um, yeah, so I, f- I find that concept really interesting because, I mean, on a molecular level, I mean, it's pretty much the same concept as, you know, like bits in your computer. Um, mm-hmm. Like you said, instead of just being on and off signals for each bit, I mean, it's almost like a four-bit system or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. So that's pretty interesting. And, you know, the fact that it can survive that long I'm I'm assuming that that would be more of like the hardcore long-term, we will not need to access this for hundreds of years sort of situation. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, the, the, the longevity aspect, like you said, that's what has scientists so interested is a combination of the fact that obviously DNA is 
microscopic. So being able to store data on something that small, I think they said you can store 215 million gigabytes on one gram of DNA, which is pretty crazy. Uh, And then it can survive for thousands of years because as long as it goes undisturbed, it's an organism or the building blocks of an organism, I should say. But uh, no, I, I that just popped up when I was doing research, and I'm like, this is way too interesting not to talk about. Yeah. Whether I don't, it's one of those things, you know, where this always happens with scientific articles, where, you know, scientists, you know, have a hypothesis, they they prove that it's possible, and then a bunch of articles get written about it that act like it's right around the corner, but it's right. not. <laughs> so we, I don't know how far this is out from you know true viability, but it's still interesting. Yeah. Hey Kyle. Hey Peter. Do you know what a website is? No. It's a thing on the internet and you can go there and it's fun. Is that where I can find things to do? Yes, you can find things to do there. (laughs) Uh, Getyourfunk.com is a website for funk radio and you can find our, our episodes there and you can listen to them and you can download them. And we have a tip jar. Do you like money, Kyle? I love money. Well, people will give us money there at getyourfunk.com. Yay! (laughs) Do you have a favorite episode of Funk Radio? I like the one about butts. Well, at getyourfunk.com, you can use the search bar and type in butts, and it'll pull up our episode that we did a while back about butts. Yay! And now back to our previously scheduled content. So, as we kind of talked about previously, um, as far as storing, you know, these archived uh, pieces of audio, uh, I guess the question is, if if everything is so temperamental as far as where you store it, how you store it, it's like, where can they put these massive libraries of music? Uh, And there's actually multiple different projects, really, around the world that are working on basically archiving, you know, historical records and music and musicians and and recordings um, from all around the world. Um, One example that I found was the BBC archives in England. Now, the BBC is the British Broadcasting Company, for those that don't know. Um, And the BBC Sound Archives is actually a collection of audio recordings that they found back in 1936. the, the archive actually includes material going all the way back to the 19th century, including about 200 wax cylinders, which is like the pre, you know, vinyl record. It's like, you know, yeah. the earliest forms of audio recording. Um, and uh, I lost my spot. Uh, and it includes 350,000 hours of radio broadcasts. Um, I also remember reading just a little snippet that was interesting. They have recordings of um, Florence Nightingale, which is oh, yeah. like the first, uh, technically like the first nurse. Uh, she was like a, a nurse in Britain in like the 1800s or something, late 1800s. Um, so that's kind of cool. Yeah, and from what I could tell, I, I, it seems like the BBC archives... I mean, obviously, like a lot of these archives are like a mix of many things. It's not only music. Um, yeah, but the BBC it's one like in historical pic- broadcast or speeches too, and 
Yeah, a lot of theirs seems to be focused on their own broadcasts of various forms. Um, yeah, which I, I I I can understand, you know. But it, you know, like we, I mean, it's it's probably one of the biggest ones in the world, and you know, obviously, it does collect a lot of different things. So, you know, in, in addition to music, there's all this other stuff as well. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and similar to uh, Britain with the BBC, America. I know we talked about this on the last episode, but America has the. Library of Congress, which actually has numerous different audio libraries, um, and the, the one that's kind of the most relevant that I think we mentioned before is the National Jukebox, um, because it pertains to music, uh, which makes historical sound recordings of basically early 20th century American music uh, available to the public for free, which is pretty cool. I think a lot of that is you know, pre-1920s, pre-1930s recordings. So a lot of it's kind of public domain. Right. Um, And actually, on that note... um, Yeah. I I know you kind of mentioned the National Jukebox a little bit in the last episode, but um, when I was looking it up for this one, I noticed a little sentence on their website that kind of caught my eye. Uh, They said, quote, Recordings in the jukebox were issued on record labels now owned by Sony Music Entertainment which has granted the Library of Congress a gratis license to stream acoustical recordings. So that seems to me to imply that even though they're basically being treated as public domain, Mm -hmm. technically many, if not all of them, were originally on, like, you know, like we said, early 20th century record labels that eventually became kind of under Sony music. But maybe because they're so old, Sony's just like, whatever keep them (laughs) i was gonna say that's 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 one aspect of this that i didn't really come across to cover is how archiving kind of coincides with copyright and like right you know does something have to be public domain before it's allowed to be archived do private record labels do sort of private archiving of their own musical history depending on how long they've been around or who they've bought you know, yeah. Um, I mean, I know we mentioned in the last episode uh, the. the um, I don't know if you could really fully consider it an archive, but the storage of like master tapes of a ton of different artists under Universal mm. uh, Music Group basically were all just kept in a warehouse, and then the warehouse went boom. Um, so whether they considered that a true archive or if it was just them holding on to the masters of a bunch of different artists that were still, you know, technically under their label or works that were under their label, even even if the artist no longer was. Um, I'm curious, yeah, how private record labels go about archiving their own stuff or if they leave that to, you know, uh, public archivists, so to speak, for older artists. I'm guessing that the big, I mean, I guess for the most part, they're all big record labels these days. Um, but I'm guessing that a lot of them have their own kind of like internal private archives for that kind of stuff. That's my guess, yeah. I, that just seems like something they would do. It, it doesn't seem like these big companies to be like, oh, you know what, we're actually going to donate this to the Library of Congress or something like that. I mean, obviously yeah. the National Jukebox, things, National Jukebox thing is a uh, kind of an outlier. I, I, I'm guessing just because of the age of those recordings. Mm-hmm. Um, no, that makes sense. But yeah, um, I think 
because the Library of Congress every year does nominate different works um, that it wants to be preserved. Uh, the reason I know this is because I saw that just last year they nominated Shrek uh, to be put in the Library of Congress as a important piece of American history, and I could not agree more. Um, and so I think in, in instances <laughs> like that, where they nominate artists or works of music or movies or television, the the honor of basically being nominated, you know, they basically are like, okay, here's a re- here's a copy of, you know, the 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 products that you can preserve it forever because you consider it an important part of history, kind of thing. Hmm. Um, but so yeah, I think in those instances, I think the the gratitude of being acknowledged by Congress, I think, allows studios to uh, record studios to basically be like, okay, you know, we're going to donate a copy of the reel or whatever, a copy of the master to you for preservation purposes. Uh, But yeah, I don't know. Like I said, I don't know how it works. I'm talking out of my butt right now. Um, Maybe that should be our our, uh, 10 year anniversary episode as you talk about the music from Shrek. (laughs) (laughs) Just a review of the soundtrack. So yeah, those the BBC Library of Congress. These are you know different countries basically sort of creating archives for their own national historical interests. But um, there's other archives around the world that are creating more of a sort of universal worldwide archive to preserve music and even just audio recordings of uh, cultures from around the world, mm. basically as a means to preserve their histories. Um, everything from recording people that speak languages that are, you know, close to dying out, um, you know, lost languages, lost tribes, lost stories from, you know, marginalized groups. Uh, to Shrek. To Shrek, exactly. <laughs> um, and one group that's working on this is called the Arctic World Archive, which was actually built in 2017 uh, in the Arctic, and it was designed to withstand natural and man-made disasters. The facility is located in the remote Svalbard archipelago in Norway. This this world this Arctic World Archive is actually near the more widely known Global Seed Vault, which I actually read about this a while back. There's a massive vault called the Global Seed Vault in the Arctic that stores seeds for all sorts of plants and crops from around the world with the intent of if we ever like completely fuck ourselves over as a species humans could never do that of course not uh this uh seed vault will protect you know the genealogical uh strains of different crops and trees and whatnot so that we could basically repopulate the planet with the proper flora, I guess, um, which is yeah. kind of depressing to think about. And actually, the global sea vault is something that I kind of had in my mind when I was, um, I don't know if I mentioned this in this episode, but like the whole idea of doing the preservation topic, I wrote this down like a couple of years ago, um, but we have been, obviously we haven't fleshed it out till now. But one of the things I was thinking about when I originally thought of this was like, in the vein of the global seed vault and stuff like that, do we have anything on Earth that preserves music in the event, you know, of like a nuclear holocaust or something like that? 
and I wouldn't, you know, there are a lot of places that I wouldn't trust to withstand something like that. But of course, apparently, at least recently, there is something like that now. Yeah, I think that's that's almost exactly their intent. Is they were like, why don't we do it for music? What we did for seeds, uh, so to speak. So this this group, the World uh, Arctic World Archive. Um, it, it's, it's it's not just music. It's just music is a part of it. A part of it for them, but yeah. they say that they are the world's safest collection of culturally significant data, mostly historical documents and manuscripts. But that also extends to audio recordings, video recordings. Um, but in so in twenty twenty two this year, the Global Music Vault uh, was was actually opened in the same area as the Global Seed Vault. Um, with the intention of being a similar facility specifically focused on preserving music. Uh, they store music yeah. on servers, which they believe, uh, at least currently, is the safest uh, long-term form of long-term preservation, um, which I don't know if there's disagreement about that. We did kind of talk about like the precarity of digital data. I, I got the impression that they have some kind of... Um like proprietary system they're using that's supposedly better. I mean, I seeing that they built this purpose-built facility in Norway with this intention, this doesn't sound like your average, you know, Silicon Valley startup where they make these huge claims yeah. and whatever. Like they seem pretty legit. So I trust that they've done some pretty good science behind it. But like you said, it's hard to know because they don't I mean I don't know how much data they give honestly so it's hard to stack it up precisely against other methods but you know yeah um yeah in their words they said quote the purpose built digital data media this purpose built digital data medium that's really hard to say uh can last for over a thousand years in the vault with guaranteed future accessibility so I guess that's the important part the storage medium is future-proof and technology-independent, so no matter how much time has passed and how technology has evolved, the data will still be accessible. So they definitely thought about that. They're, they're not just putting this on Western digital drives. <laughs> right, and that ties back into what you were saying earlier, too. Part of the problem with digital preservation, and I think, honestly, people and the Internet has kind of realized this over the last 20 years, is that with the evolution of different file formats and whatnot, even within a short time span, we're seeing like, oh, it's actually harder to preserve certain things than we realized. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, a couple analogs I can think about to this, one of which is like um, the death of Flash in the last few years, yeah, which kind of like dominated the internet for 20 plus years. Um, but there, now there's so many animations and games and stuff that like, are pretty hard to recover now because Flash is, like, gone. And, you know, I, I'm not saying, like, there's no way to recover some of that stuff, but a lot of it, I think, is pretty difficult to do, if not impossible. Yeah. Another one I would say is that I know, like, and I, I'm not sure you know this too, Kyle, of, like, people who preserve, um, like, video games from, say, the 80s. Or, yeah. Or earlier, or even, like, into the 90s, it's, like, as especially with older games, you know, the original hardware is the only way to play these games. But as this, as the hardware becomes older, it only becomes more prone to breaking, harder to repair. You know, we're already starting to have that issue now. What's it going to be like 50 mm -hmm. years from now? 
No, that's a very good point. Um, I was actually about to mention that exact thing is the, and this kind of goes back even to, you know, how record labels approach this. It, it's, it's a similar scenario with video game companies where companies like Nintendo and Sony that make video games that have been making them for 30 or 40 years, they are so focused on, you know, their current development that they often forget about the preservation of their own creative works from 10, 20, 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. And you have sort of video game collectors and stuff that want to preserve these games, want to keep these systems up and running to play these games. And they're getting no love from the, the companies that created them because they're like, we made that 30 years ago. We don't care anymore. It's not making us money, so we don't care if it's exactly. lost the time. Exactly. Um, which then goes kind of back to, I know we talked about this before, you know, the concept of, like, is it okay to emulate something like a video game or, say, pirate a, a song that is no longer supported by the creator um, for the purposes of preservation, you know? Is it okay yeah. to rip the digital audio off of a vinyl record from a studio or a music studio and an artist that no longer exists for the purposes of at least keeping a digital copy of it. Yeah. And I, I think from, you know, if, if we take a step back and look at preservation of anything as a whole, like any kind of media, it's kind of scary almost in a way to think about cases like video games where, you know, probably with some exceptions, like in general, the people producing this stuff are taking no responsibility for actually preserving it like from an official standpoint. So like average people are having to do that. And if they weren't doing it, then it would just be lost, even though these are in many ways, you know, culturally significant things. So, you know, I'm, I'm glad that we're seeing, you know, continued efforts, at least in the music space of um, preserving stuff because, you know, it, it is such a key part of our humanity, and there's so much music that it, it would be impossible for average people to be doing it on their own. Exactly. No, that's a very good point. Um, but yeah, it, it it does seem like, at least in some respect, there is a sense for the need of preservation of music, whether studios always are cooperative, I don't know. But it do, it is nice that there's groups out there like this arctic world archive that are kind of understanding the necessity of sort of preserving you know things of cultural importance so yeah. um but yeah no um yeah listeners if you are aware of any other projects that are preserving um music or audio recordings um you can let us know on our facebook page uh at facebook.com slash get your funk we still use facebook um and you can listen to us where you're listening to us right now. Um, Hopefully that's getyourfunk.com. Well, actually, I don't yes. care if you're listening to it there, but you can find our episodes there if you want. So in a, in a way, I do care. <laughs> I care because it's how we get, how people pay us. Which is, <laughs> I care because uh, we're paying for it, so we're supposed to care. Touche, yeah, touche. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but thanks for listening. Um, I think we're planning for the next one to be our 10-year episode if i'm not mistaken yeah yeah it should be around that time which is crazy i know (laughs) so i guess uh keep an ear out for that listeners and we will be here next time you will listen next time 
or else I guess you won't be the listeners. But we'll still love you. (laughs) That's been your host, Kyle. And that's been your host, Peter. And you have been the listeners. Thanks for being the listeners, and we will talk next time.